0: Yes, that has been my experience. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to our third segment.
1: (laughs) Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am, and I know this is going out on a limb and is not worth even mentioning, but I'm just going to say it anyway, shaving clubs... I listen to a lot of podcasts, and they advertise shaving clubs.
2: Sounds like you are now too.
1: Why would I ever? Wa- <laughs>
2: How much are uh, we getting? For that, men? Matt. Can,
1: uh, can we get our residual? <laughs> That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. Don always used to throw in the uh, a zip recruiter. because ZipRecruiter's on every podcast. No shave. Club, what? Who? Who? Who belongs to a shave club? And it's called a club, right? It's not like a. You know, a... Catalog. ...shaving service. Right. Or so there's like
2: a president. It's, yeah. <laughs> and like a treasurer.
1: Yeah. And you get, yeah. A, you get a membership badge. How does this work? I don't know. Anyway, moving on. So I'm Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. And I am here with Jen Ryder. Hello. And back with us this week is Jennifer Weave. Hi there. Both from the Department of Epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. And we are, as always... In the godly studio. I don't know why I've always mentioned that. It just makes me feel like there's something historic about being in the godly studio. But this is a magical place. This, you, the, the things that you can do here in the godly studio are the things of dreams. <laughs> uh, so as a reminder, go ahead on over to the Population Health Exchange website. www.pophealthex.org. Www, wobbly, 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 ex. Phew. Phew. BU's hub for lifelong learning and also give us a rating on your iTunes or your Stitcher or your phone or whatever it is you use to contact the interwebs. We love it when people give us feedback. So I'll tell my my story that I teased last week, which is I got an email recently from somebody who I, I'm not going to name because I don't have her permission to name her. But she gave, she's in a very complimentary email saying how much she loves the show. And she listens to us on her long commute that she has. And she I feel listens. like we're getting
2: to identifying information now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm only going to say long commute. You're
0: only going to give us the first three digits of her zip code. And
1: yeah. it runs... <laughs> The the city rhymes with Schmalt Lakes. No, 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 Uh, And she she was saying how much she enjoys it. And for some reason, she pictures us in the car with her, but specifically in the backseat. We are in the backseat having a conversation. Like Wayne's World. Like Wayne's World. A lot like Wayne's World. So I did. I did write back to her and say that. how much I really appreciated it. But I did let her know that I get car sick in the back, I did too. so she either had to picture me in the front or she had to picture me throwing up. That was her <laughs> her choice, really. Um, so, so
0: thanks for. Uh, I guess that's. The end of that, listener, Matt. <laughs> thank you.
1: That is the end of that. But thank you, listener, who shall remain nameless in whatever city you rhyme with. So now on the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on the impact of elective and non-elective C-sections on the risk of obesity in the, in the offspring. And then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about a paper on how bad statistical practices drive away the good ones, or do they? No, no, I added that. Or do they? And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that have made us laugh out loud, or I will tell you about the movies that make me cry on airplanes. Hint, anything with Vin Diesel in it just brings a tear to my eye. I, You think I'm kidding. I'm actually serious. There was a period of time when on planes, all I watched were uh, the Fast and Furious movies, and they, uh, for some reason, I got teary. I don't. I'm not proud There's of it, but it's, about it's true.
2: Being on a plane that I think heightens
1: well, so emotional this, this, this
2: vulnerability. This was my amazing um, and amusing from yeah, a couple weeks ago, which yeah.
1: isn't because you don't listen to the podcast every week. It's because that one hasn't come out yet. That's why you don't know about it. <laughs> All right. I was about to once again say no onto the show, but I won't do that since we're already in the show. So let's go to segment one. We're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of elective versus non-elective C-sections and obesity published in PLOS Medicine. And it was entitled Elective and Non-Elective Caesarean Sections and Obesity Among Young Adult Male Offspring. And there was a particular reason that it was male offspring. And if that's because the rest of the study title is colon, a Swedish population-based cohort study that was using uh, military conscription, conscription record. records. Yeah. Yeah. Which I have to say, I had to look up the word conscription for reasons that go into the study because I thought maybe I didn't understand the word the way I did come back to that. So it's by first author, Victor Alkvistl of the Department of Global Health and Public Health Sciences at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. So here are the headlines on this one. Medical Express says, study debunks the notion that C-sections would increase risk of obesity in the child. Yahoo News says, C-section births not linked to obesity in children. Google News, no link between cesarean delivery and obesity research finds. And the Irish Sun says researchers disprove the myth that C-section babies are more likely to get fat. And I picked that one because, boy, that was a bit of a, a blunt mm-hmm. one. Where mm-hmm. was
0: that one published? The Irish Sun, huh. mm-hmm. which
1: I assume you read on your commute But when
0: someone Irish says the word fat, it sounds lovely. Yeah, Yeah.
1: that's a good point. At least entertaining. That's a good point. So Jen, can you start us off and and give us the rundown on this study?
0: Sure. So just a little bit of background to start. So between 1990 and 2014, the world prevalence of C-section increased by 285%. Amazing, huh? So from 6.7 to 19.1 of all births. And these changes are really more than what can be explained by changes in maternal risk factors that would lead you to, to get a cesarean. The authors also say that maternal preference contributes and fear of childbirth. I don't know that Cesarean really gets you out of the whole childbirth thing, but but anyway. Interesting. It's I, it's uh, an interesting I'm... choice of words. Yeah. It, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. There has been a concurrent increase in obesity, which kind of generated the interest in this, initially at least, in this connection. Cesarean is associated with some negative health outcomes, so things like allergy, asthma, and... In the offspring. In the offspring. Yes. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. Yes. And possibly overweight or obesity, and the mechanisms suggested for this have included the surge of hormones that happens during uh, natural childbirth or a lack of stress exposure during cesarean section that would be there during vaginal delivery, or even things like DNA methylation or differences in the microbiome during those two delivery methods.
1: Is it okay that I don't know what DNA methylation is, and normally I would just smile and nod and let you continue?
0: Uh, yes, it's fine. Okay, you good. good. Yeah. <laughs> so these are epigenetic changes. So changes not to the structure of your DNA, but how the DNA is ends up being expressed. Got it. Okay, so elective and non-elective cesarean have different indications, which could require control for different confounders, right? So the... Primary concern is confounding by indication. So mothers of fetuses that have complications may be more likely to undergo non-elective cesarean, and they may also, those infants may also be at higher risk for obesity. So one way the authors say to address that is to analyze the two groups separately, the elective and uh, non-elective C-sections. The two procedures also differ in the amount of exposure to things like stress and microflora. So the objective of this study was to evaluate the association between C-section and overweight obesity in the offspring, taking into account whether or not the C-section was elective or not. So they took advantage of the fact that conscription... So. A military exam was mandatory in Sweden for all males up to the age of 47 during their study period.
1: And that was the part that confused me about conscription, because I would have assumed that if conscription simply meant military service, I would have thought that that would be when you were, say, 18 or 21 or whatever it is. But I looked it up. It does, in fact, mean draft. essentially like... Be drafted into the military, right?
0: Yes. So, but Mm -hmm. so, and I think it was, you know, it was customary in Sweden for all males to go do some type of military service. Got it. And I don't think you, I think it was most common that they did it around the age of 18, but I think there were situations where maybe you would do that later. But you were kind of on the hook up to age 47 for. military service. And only chronic disease or severe handicap would lead to an exemption. And that required some sort of approval. So it did capture the male population at that time. They identified participants from the amazing Swedish population registries. So they used the Swedish Military Service conscription Registry, the Swedish Medical Birth Register, the Multi-Generation Register, and different Swedish population and housing censuses. Censuses. Sensei. Mm -hmm. Sensei. All from 1970 and 1990. And all of that can be accomplished because of the unique... Personal ID number in Sweden, and I have one actually. Did you know that? Oh, I think I do. I have no. a Swedish. I do as well. Person number. Yep. Yeah, we're Swedes, wait, man. We both
1: have Swedish. Wait, yeah. wh- what did I get we, myself into we live here? There. Yeah, and yeah. so if we went and back to And this is live how in... I have to find out <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs>
2: yeah, I wasn't even there that long, and yeah. they, they but you gave can't it to, do anything. It
0: to you can't do anything without one. Yeah, so you can't even oh, get reimbursed
2: for giving a talk. <laughs> wait, what? What is happening?
1: Okay. Okay. All right. So you both have these. Okay. Yeah. I'm one. also Swedish, I'm feeling, but yeah. I'm feeling left out.
0: <laughs> There's some perks. Yeah. There's some perks. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mem- um, membership uh, has its privileges. So
0: they identified 303,344 male singletons who were born between 1982 and 1987 from the Swedish Medical Birth Register. 229,632 had information on mode of delivery and were matched to the conscription data. If they were conscripted before 2006, and then they categorized the mode of delivery as vaginal elective C-section, which basically meant that it occurred pre-labor or non-elective C-section, which was after the onset of labor. 76,000-plus men were excluded due to missing information on height, weight, or other potential confounders, such as maternal BMI and smoking. And so 97,921 men with a median age of 18 years at conscription were included in the analysis. And in that group, they also included 9,676 matchable full brothers.
1: Matchable? Yes. yes.
0: All of the height and weight measurements at conscription are done under the supervision of a nurse or physician. And that was used to determine the WHO BMO categories of underweight, normal weight. What did I say?
1: BMO. (laughs) Sorry. BMI, GMO.
0: WHO BMI, let's just say BMO. BMO, I
1: like okay. it. The, BMO.
0: Um, the The BMI categories, which are underweight, normal weight, overweight, and obese, and they also looked at associations of BMI as a continuous variable. In terms of confounders, from the medical birth register, they adjusted for pre-pregnancy maternal factors like BMI, diabetes, hypertension at delivery, smoking, parity, age, gestational age, preeclampsia, and birth weight standardized to gestational age in the infants. And then from the population and housing censuses, they used the highest level of paternal and maternal education as a measure of socioeconomic status. They used multinomial logistic regression to estimate relative risks and 95% confidence intervals and did quite a few sensitivity analyses, you know, comparing those who didn't participate in conscription or were excluded due to missing data compared to those in the analytic sample, et cetera. They also looked at BMI in a number of different ways, including cubic transformation. Uh um, one of my
1: favorite transformations. You like the, yep. the,
0: the cubic. I'm all about the cubic. You're yep. a cubist? They excluded babies born preterm, et cetera. So one interesting little tidbit about their study, they had the study protocol and statistical analysis Mm -hmm. plan registered at clinicaltrials.gov, even even though though, it's an observational study. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and they say why, too. They say for transparency and to reduce the risk for post hoc analysis.
0: Which is, I mean, we like this, right? Do we like this?
1: I do. I think there are people who think that it's not... Observational studies shouldn't necessarily go this route, but I. Well, that it
0: shouldn't be mandatory, right? Like, I think there's. Yeah, 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 Yeah. that there are cases
1: where it just, yeah. But yeah, I do. I agree.
0: Okay, so what they found was that mothers, on average, were 28 and a half years at delivery and had a pre pregnancy BMI of 21.9. Just under 5% of the conscripts were obese, so 4.9%. And according to delivery method, it was 4.9% obese for vaginal delivery, 5.5% for elective C-section, and 5.6% for non-elective C-section. There were some differences that they observed in baseline characteristics between women according to their mode of delivery, which I think we would expect. So those with vaginal deliveries had lower maternal BMI than the elective or non-elective C-section groups, uh, lower maternal pre-pregnancy obesity, and higher infant birth weight. Those with elective C-sections had higher parental education and more diabetes. And then the non-elective C-section group had more preeclampsia and maternal smoking at the beginning of pregnancy. So not super surprising. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind that the results were all adjusted for pre-pregnancy, maternal factors, and gestational age-adjusted birth weight. So the relative risk for Elective C-section versus vaginal delivery and young adult obesity was 0.96, with a confidence interval of 0.83 to 1.1. The relative risk comparing non-elective C-section to vaginal delivery and young adult obesity was 1.02, with a confidence interval of 0.88 to 1.18. And they also looked at the results with respect to overweight rather than obesity and found no association with that. Either. Maternal pre pregnancy BMI appeared to be the strongest confounder in those analyses. And in the sensitivity analysis that they looked at, they didn't, in general, find them to to really alter the, the findings. You know, looking at BMI as a continuous variable didn't seem to add much. But they did find that some factors did vary between people included in the analytic sample and not, things like parental
1: education. So, so, like with the study that we took on two weeks ago, so long ago now, I barely even remember it, the study we did two weeks ago where I said, I wasn't so sure I wanted to take this one on, but we decided we'd go with it, and we did. And then I was really, really pleased that we did because it was so fascinating. Um, I had a similar experience reading this one, and part of what fascinated me about this one is that it, it took a problem and in my opinion, looked at it in a different way than I would have previously thought about it. So you've got this question that you wanna answer about whether or not C-section is associated with obesity in the child. And so typically when we're doing observational research, we want to think about what are the potential confounders. We would draw that out in a causal diagram, a DAG, and draw out the relationships between different variables in the exposure and the outcome. And so you would think of this in this case as cesarean or not, or you could think of it as a three-level variable, no, cesare- no cesarean, elective cesarean, or non-elective cesarean, and then you'd draw your confounding structures. But as they conceptualize it, and I think they they are right in making this point, is that the confounding structures that would affect uh, elective C-section versus no C-section and non-elective C-section versus no C-section, or potentially elective versus non-elective, are different sets of structures, and mm-hmm. therefore they are different questions that you're asking, and they would have different sets of confounders and therefore different causal diagrams. And that's just not not something that I was accustomed to thinking of, something that I would normally think of a single variable with multiple levels as being.
2: You know, I think a similar exposure might be alcohol uh, consumption. And thinking about the determinants of alcohol consumption at the lowest end, so non-drinkers, probably look really different from the pressures of drinking a lot. And so maybe if you consider sort of, say, some kind of middle level of drinking as a referent group, uh, what goes into comparing that exposure versus no exposure versus very high exposure looks
1: very different. So you're saying if you were asking the question, does heavy drinking versus reducing your heavy drinking to moderate drinking yeah. compared to the effect of heavy drinking versus quitting drinking, mm-hmm. those would have different confounding structures. Yeah, yeah I c- I can I can see that.
0: No, I, and I also I love that they specifically talk about DAGs in the paper, and I'm actually <laughs> I'm looking at my own drawing. Yeah. Uh, my, oh, you got your own
1: DAG. I, I, well,
2: I, I do too. In the
0: in the description of the sensitivity analysis, yeah. the last the last line is. Finally, as gestational age may act as a collider under certain causal pathways, re- we repeated our main analysis, excluding oh, adjustment for yes. gestational age. I was like, whoa. And so I was like, I still don't quite get how it works. I mean, I still my DAG, look at it. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. it's I like not.
1: Your dag. Oh. It's a beautiful DAG. That should be in the Museum of DAGs.
0: I mean, I wish I mean I wish that they would have gone Mo- the Museum next step and included their DAG in the paper. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that would have yeah. made right. me even
1: happier. I'm with you. Um,
0: it would have yep. saved me a lot of time trying to draw it myself but to yeah read but their I, saw, I saw on your notes Jennifer I have, that I you have, also I have look dags. at that
1: you guys are daggity <laughs> daggity is the program uh all right so so Jennifer what's your what's your overall critique of this study
2: yes yeah, so I I really appreciated this distinction between the two reasons for having a cesarean section, and reading it, one thing that was struck that struck me as well was their figure, which showed uh, the origin of their very large sample. There's mm-hmm. ninety seven thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, is an issue. Yeah, yeah, analytic yeah, yeah. Sample. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and so ninety seven thousand seems like a lot, but then you notice that they start out with three hundred thousand potential yep. potentially eligible men for this this study. And and what I was really curious about was this 54,000 men who were not conscripted. I was really c- curious about these 76,000 men who had no BMI at conscription. That's a lot a big chunk of the people who could have been in the study and and so, what we're left with is this very large study that has very precise estimates um that are not very big, which is um you know, a really great use of a large study, which is <laughs> to show the absence of a large effect. Mm-hmm. And yet, I think these there's a lot of people who whose data are not present here and could have moved things in one direction or the other. And the authors did report a table comparing, the characteristics of people who contributed data and people who did not work, contribute all the data to analysis. I did not have the opportunity to look at that. I just have only have their word that says there was nothing meaningful, <laughs> and I always wonder what that means. I'm and, with you. And, uh, and, a
1: lot, and more and yeah. more journals are actually not allowing you to. I mean, that's the equivalent of data not shown. Data not shown. And more and more journals are. And not now there's no reason that. for that, right?
0: You yeah. can have as many supplementary online tables as you
2: want. Yes. Yeah, they did, yeah. and I didn't look at it, and I. I I apologize, I did not prepare, but but I so so great so great that they they reported it. Uh, they did say, um, and I, I appreciate this statement. They said there actually were statistically significant differences, but mm. acknowledged that the reason that could happen is because of their very large sample. And I appreciate that. But what I want to know is what the magnitude of those differences. Uh, is. And what would have happened had we or what could have happened? What are the bounds of things that could have happened had we had that data?
1: I agree. I mean it, it, it screams out not it I was gonna say it screams out selection bias. It doesn't. It screams out potential yes. for selection potential. bias. It, 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 Only asks, potential. it opens the, the 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 question in your mind mm-hmm. you know, do these factors that, that predict missingness also, you know cause us to have different exposure outcome Relationships in the observed data than we would have had if we had had all of the missing data, and Mm -hmm. to me that, to me that was the that was the biggest problem I had with this study was that you you really are as you say down to uh, it depends on where you mark it from, but at least half the study half of the study participants who are eligible were excluded, maybe more depending on where you kind of draw the line and Mm -hmm. what you consider to be the eligible population, and I yeah i do I do think that that could potentially be problematic and might explain why other studies have seen effects and they didn't, Jen, what's your what's your yeah, take? so,
0: um, so I also I agree that with something like conscription that really could be related to health your outcomes, health. <laughs> yeah, it seems <laughs> yeah, like we should be a little bit concerned about the the possibility of selection bias. and And, you know, their results are a bit different from other published results. So,
1: Interestingly enough, different from – so they lead in with this – they talk about the Yuan study, Mm -hmm. and they talk about the fact that the Yuan study had good confounder control, at least in their estimation. Mm -hmm. So their whole point here was they were going to do this in a big population with good confounder control. Why wouldn't they – But did that study separate
0: elective and non-elective?
1: No. So I I think think that was their
0: additional – like that was one of the main differences between that – prior study. And right. then I no, think some didn't. of the other differences were that they were looking at prior studies had looked at overweight and obesity in much younger children. So these of course were kids when young they adults. were 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they're young adults. Mm-hmm. And in younger children they they had seen an association between C-section and overweight obesity, you know, in infants. So so that seems important also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. All right. So I want to talk a bit about mechanisms because we, you know, we, we have, I mean, I don't want to say we ignore it on this, this program, but we probably don't spend as much time talking about the specific proposed mechanisms as we probably should. Maybe I'm overstating that because we do talk about it, but I think as epidemiologists in general, we live in an era where we have access to so much data. You know, it's very easy to just say, well, let's just look. Let's just, I mean, let's just see what happens if we look at this relationship. Now, this study was actually really careful, and that's getting into the registration of saying, we have a hypothesis, we're going to pre-register our hypothesis, and then we're going to test it, and good for them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of epidemiologic research doesn't work that way. This was hypothesis-driven, but it's driven based on the following mechanism. The proposed mechanisms explaining the observed association between C-section and subsequent morbidity in the offspring include, but are not limited to, hormonal surge, lack of stress exposure, DNA methylation, and microflora transmission. So that feels like... eh. Could be pretty broad. It could it's be a whole so, lot of things.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let's I, throw in inflammation.
1: <laughs> well, that, that's exactly where I'm going with this, right? It seems like stress and inflammation are the proposed mechanisms for just about any allergic that yeah. pr- 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 hypothesis that's out there. And I wonder, I mean, you know, they're probably in some sense could be right, but at the same time, like... It feels like you could spin a story for any possible mechanism. And so if we do that, are we essentially just saying, you know, mechanism actually isn't really driving what we're doing because we could come up with a story for a mechanism by which, you know, ice cream causes, you name it. I don't know. Cold. Higher fertility. Higher fertility. fertility. What does Wait, does yeah. it?
2: In the first few months of ice cream consumption, probably yes. After about twenty years, probably not.
1: Oh, okay, <laughs> got it, got it. And so, uh, so I guess my question is: Do do you think we pay enough attention to mechanisms in epidemiologic research, or do we spend more time thinking about data and analyses we could do?
0: As an as an epidemiologist who spends her time like thinking about etiology, I will tell you it's it's not the easiest world to be living in. Like no. I think that you know, I don't know, there's I think there's a general lack of interest in in funding that that type of work, right? Even though it's really important. But would the study where they related C-sections to certain biomarkers, you know, would that have gotten as much play? No. Like people want to look at the outcome. So, I don't know. So I think it's super important, but I'm not sure that's where people's interest lies right no, now. I,
1: yeah, no, I think you're right. But I, doesn't, it, doesn't it give us a more coherent story? Well, so in this case, they found no effect, right? But if they had found an effect, wouldn't it add to the strength of our understanding or our ability to believe in the effect if in addition to showing an overall effect, they could show a mechanism by which that had occurred such that we would, we would be more likely to believe it?
0: I think so. But I think like that hasn't been how things have been marching along. It's like you publish this study and then, you know, someone might come along and do the much smaller biomarker study, right? And then you have to piece together... Or to it in mice. Or but it's like mice. what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> yeah. where, like, what if you were allowed to publish one paper a year? That would be the mega paper the paper yeah. where you showed the overall epidemiologic association, you showed biologic evidence of a mechanism in animals yeah. and humans, and then done for the year.
1: I've changed my opinion on the one paper <laughs> per year thing. I've changed my Now it's uh, every paragraph I write is going to be published independently. <laughs> and then you will have to go and search the literature <laughs> to piece it together to figure out. It's like a choose your own adventure paper. <laughs> I love it. That's my new, the different my new en- endings. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, is it our job? Is it? I mean, okay. if, if we're like, so it's sort of in some ways, like think about writing a grant or even a paper. On the one hand, there is this idea that, that proposing mechanisms is part of the song and dance of writing a grant, right? Um, It's like, well, why do you think this is important? And in some ways, you you have this realization that sometimes it doesn't matter. You just have to put something out there so that it's okay for you to do this research, as long as it doesn't seem totally irresponsible. On the other hand, I think we can all name a paper where we thought, or a discussion with people where we were, we were wondering who or why are you even doing this analysis? Mm -hmm. Like what made you ever think it was okay to do this? And, and I have been part of those conversations where I have had to stop people because I, I saw them going down a road that I thought this question, I, first of all, I'm not sure what you're asking. And if you tell me, I think it's, we're going to all be really horrified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And so, okay. So it's interesting because they propose the mechanisms, but then they end up with a null result such that presumably the the explanation then is these mechanisms are not operating because we don't end up with a population of increased risk of of obesity. So taking this all into account, you know the issues with the selection bias, the fact that they found a null effects that they, we didn't talk about potential for misclassification but with obesity, you know categorizations in general, that's always there. Do you buy? Do you buy the results? I mean, do you think it is there is truly no effect as the headlines would have us believe, or are you need more information to be convinced?
0: I think I probably need more information to be convinced. I mean, and I think my the selection bias concern is is the main concern that I'm
1: left with. Can I tell you the one thing that that, that comforts me on the selection yeah, bias yeah. though? Like, I always think. Okay, I, I read a paper, I'm concerned about selection bias going into it, and then I find a null result, and I think, well, what are the chances they, like, got, like, right to the null? There really was some effect, and it just got perfectly canceled out. I mean, no, 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 I know they're not exactly on the null, but, you know, I was like, what are the chances? So maybe maybe that makes it more likely to be true. I know that's a ridiculous, ridiculous way to go about life, but that is... <laughs> Welcome because to the mind no one of likes a null finding. Nope. Well, no, I'm saying the right. null makes it more believable. Right. You know, oh, what? right. Yeah, yeah, so no, no one, one exactly. Right. So, yeah. so they would right. So that could never yeah. Oh, sorry. So I interrupted you.
0: No, no, no. No, I was also just another window into the mind of Matt Fox. You know, normally we um circulate these papers, but for some reason these past couple episodes you've circulated your highlighted version of yes. the paper.
1: you don't want to you don't want to know it's
0: so interesting. Like it is. you will highlight something and I'm like, Matt finds that
1: interesting. Why? <laughs> I okay. Had, I had okay, to. So say I a, a,
2: yes. Yes.
1: I am a <laughs> I'm a chronic over highlight. Hi. You my do. name is Matt and it is I'm a, a little chronic over. I didn't think it was that
2: bad. I just thought I did I mean, think it was at, like a
0: window. Look at this page. Is there anything I wasn't supposed to <laughs> read on this page? Really? Yeah. And actually I
2: skipped the entire discussion because he highlighted nothing the, in it. The,
1: the, the, <laughs> The best part is I never even go back to it. I just, once I've highlighted it, I'm done. That is my signal to the world. But
0: it's like, it's a way of like active learning or something. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. right? Like the underlining Maybe. makes, Earth. I don't know. It, yeah. I know. it makes me feel better. I do it too, but.
1: Okay. Jennifer, do you what, what's your what's your overall result? So yeah, so what I would it. like
2: to do is go into this supplemental table. I'd like to look at the differences between the missing people and the people who are in the study, and maybe play around with those results, perhaps using a spreadsheet that you designed. Who? Uh, Me? You what? yes, uh, uh, sort of quantitative, a very crude. I'm not saying you're crude. Uh, <laughs> quantitative <laughs> bias analysis.
1: <laughs> I get it. I get Just
2: it. Just to see how far off these would be and in what direction yeah, yeah, yeah. um i would like to know what direction it would be off and i i will also confess i'm a little interested in the results comparing or looking at the outcomes of being underweight versus normal weight mm. yeah they didn't really um, talk about those no. in the
0: results at all there was yeah.
2: some suggestion of anyway it was, it's again hard to know what to do with that but um uh, it wasn't really a primary part of their analysis but it was i was curious
1: yeah, I agree with that. Did did the so they did an analysis where they limited it to sibling pairs, mm-hmm. right? Um, did that was that helpful? Additional information for you.
2: So, so let's think about like what what is the goal? Like what advantage would that offer? So confounding
1: by environmental factors within the family. Yeah,
2: of course. Your the mom is always older. <laughs> the second birth. Let's Unless they're twins, and Swedes are known for their twin studies. Yeah, and studies. these were all singletons yeah. included. Yeah. So these they were brothers. Uh, they're all singletons. And, you know, I think the biggest source of confounding, possibly, is uh, BM- maternal BMI. Mm-hmm. And, and I, was, I was concerned, but I don't know enough about this topic, about possible uh, indications for non-elective cesarean section. I was thinking, okay, well, if there are indications... And it, and if you have one of them, it always means you're going to have a mm-hmm, non-elective cesarean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. section. We're going to have a positivity problem. Does it matter? Is the indication related to obesity? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't um, know the answer to that either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that was their, I mean, they said their strongest confounder, yep. pre-pregnancy yeah. BMI.
1: Yeah. All right. A couple of last things. So they say in our primary analysis, no statistically significant association between elective C-section and obesity. RRR, 1.14, 95% confidence interval from 0.99 to 1.3. Whereas a similar association between non-elective C-section and obesity differed from unity. RRR, 1.17, 95% confidence interval, (laughs) 1.02 to Mm 1.34. Come on now. Those are exactly the same. It is a true statement, but that is not helpful. Now, maybe they just ignore that because those are the crude associations and they shrunk back to one. But I did find that one a little disappointing. (laughs) Second of all, RRR. Oh,
2: yeah. I was going to say, what is a pirate's favorite measure of association?
1: (laughs) RRR. Wait, what is a pirate's favorite statistical software?
2: You tell us, Matt. <laughs> we can't get yes. in, in your.
1: <laughs> a pirate's favorite statistical software is SAS because that's what his mentor used, and he was too lazy to learn R. <laughs> okay, moving on. RRR. R if Have you come across R R R? Not R R relative risk or risk ratio. This is the relative Different risk <laughs> ratio. ratio, which
2: seems it's a little really a little heavy-handed yeah. there.
1: The R R R. Um, anyway, and I also, you know, I don't know why this happens to me, but you know, certain words when they get repeated stand out. I think it's largely because when I read my own writing, I am very repetitive, but they use the, use the phrase to the best of our knowledge three times. Should Hmm. you be using the best of our knowledge three times? I don't know. And the word, however, 16 times.
2: Sixteen. Yeah. yeah and I suspect that's uh,
1: less than what appear in most of my papers. I'm a big however fan.
2: I am too. And I go through and I replace half of them with yet.
1: Oh. <laughs> but what do you do? Do you ever read your do you ever read your own studies and you have however two sentences in a row? Oh, and yeah. you're like, hmm. Something something's not right here. <laughs> All right. So So I think we like that study, but we have some concerns. All right, yeah. so let's let's move on to a uh so this was a this is a what a media this is a blog post in medium yes. by uh darren daly who uh is very active on the twitter sphere if you go onto twitter you can find some really you can you can learn a lot from from mm-hmm. darren and he wrote this blog on medium called how bad statistical practices drive away the good ones and while this article makes a, a sort of a coherent argument about one particular thing. To me, it broke down into essentially two arguments that I want to talk about, and we can talk about them successively. Successfully. successively. 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 Successfully, One before the other. Yes. Okay. So he talks about how he's interested in research integrity and reproducibility. He says, I believe that a lack of statistical expertise throughout the sciences is a substantial driver of problems in these areas. Feel especially strong about this thesis as it applies to medical research. Fine. Now he says, in practice, it seems to be widely accepted that the expertise of the statistician can largely be replaced by the efforts of the investigator. The idea starts with their training. The flip side of this is that just about every clinician will have received some statistical training. Some of the clinicians who go on to more research-intensive careers will have had a bit more. However, the statistical training that clinicians receive, even for those with PhDs, is often very limited. Many clinical researchers are even taught that you only need a real statistician for the most unusual problems. Okay, so the basic idea being if you are a medical doctor and I read a book on medicine, I don't feel like I am qualified then to practice medicine. In fact, not only do I not feel like I'm qualified, if I try to practice medicine, I go to jail. Whereas when it comes to a collaboration between doctors and epidemiologists and statisticians, there's often a feeling that what statisticians, and I would argue epidemiologists as well do, can it can be done by anyone. We just had a facetiously titled talk here called... Uh, epidemiology is easy. Anyone can do it. You know the the idea that that this is something that you don't really need expert training in. You can just do it. It's easy. Do you think this is correct? Has this been your experiences? And then we'll come back to the second point later. Has your experience been that what you do as an epidemiologist or a statistician is undervalued in the sense that it is seen as something that it's nice to have you there but most of the stuff we can kind of do ourselves and don't really need your fancy PhD level epidemiology training to do
0: yes that has been my experience
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay let's move on to our third segment
2: Um, you're not going to hear my answer we don't no, I would say the
0: encouraging thing is that, you know, I do, I collaborate a lot with clinicians and, you know, I tend to attend clinical conferences. And I think the one reassuring thing is there is a group who is hungry to involve trained epidemiologists or statisticians and to learn new methods. And, you know, so at some clinical conference, there's been a tremendous amount of interest in, you know, more hands-on training in, in methodology and statistics. And so I think that's, That's a sign that things are moving in the right direction. But I think, you know, I mean, even, you know, in papers that I review in terms of my own collaborations, I I do think there's this sense that, you know, I took a couple classes in epi or in statistics, and now I know how to run a logistic regression model. And isn't that all you really need to do? I mean, that's, you know, that's it. I get results. I publish them. So, yes. So I have experienced that. What about you, Jennifer? Jennifer?
2: Oh, never! (laughs) Isn't the theme facetiousness? (laughs) So I was, I was thinking about this in terms of the price that's paid for being wrong about needing a collaborator who has a kind of expertise that you don't have. And I was thinking, okay, if we went out to practice medicine, and um, I'm just going to say, I'm pretty sure. Well, Matt, we've heard your confession; you're not a physician, and I believe you're not either. And I.
1: Yeah, we can ask Chris about his experiences. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we would pay a pretty heavy price very quickly for trying to practice medicine with with our level of knowledge. We might luck out a couple times. (laughs) A broken clock is right twice a day. So, um, but if you're a clinician and you're wrong about your stats or your epi reasoning, you're not going to pay any price at all. So long as you keep publishing.
1: Even though... Bad clinicians lead to bad outcomes in a patient, whereas bad medical research leads to bad outcomes in thousands of patients
2: sure does, but but no one but there's not like just like the wall street sounds i'm making this horrible <laughs> sweeping analogies no wall street banker goes to jail for uh for some of the things that happened during the crash but but essentially wait I, wait, I, wait 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 wait, wait, wait.
1: <laughs> are we the wall street bankers no, 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 in this no, analogy no, no, i'm
2: talking about i'm talking about research that's poorly conducted because of a lack of insight from but you do go from, to,
1: you do go to jail if you're a uh clinician and you kill people, but you don't <laughs> you, go to jail if, if you're you a kill, researcher and you, you do bad you kill thousands research. of people with,
2: a, with your bad research. So, so, okay, so back to this story. <laughs> so I find okay. often I will be pulled into projects after someone has had an experience that rattled them mm. and okay. like, oh, so either they'll have a series of horrible reviews, they'll go to some talk where all of a sudden the light goes on. It's not so to go, go back to Darren's Darren's piece here. He talks about the training of clinician researchers, and that it's there's really not a clear message that says you need to build a team with expertise in every dimension of the thing that you're studying, including the EPI part and the biostat part. Um, instead, that lesson comes later, and it comes later in you know through varying experiences. But but this has been my experience. More than once. <laughs> on head, I, actually, yeah.
0: I think it's even a little bit worse because I think that clinicians who perhaps don't like spending time in the lab and don't have laboratory training but want to have some kind of research portfolio, I do think that they're given the message, oh, just do you know, learn how to program in SAS, you're going to be great. Like that's all, that is your ticket to, and yeah. So, so I think, I don't know, it's coming and, and there are people who've been successful. You can't see my bunny ears right now. Like doing, (laughs) doing that, um, doing that. So it's, and then it's self propagating because then those people train mentees to, Mm -hmm. to also not build the right Teams and and do similar work. So mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. So I don't know.
2: Yeah, and I would say, in fairness, like this is not to go after clinicians only. Or no. I, mean, I would say this is sort of it's almost a human phenomenon. Oh. So I've seen. So one of the the research questions I ask. This is a great example because I see it all the time. Involves air pollution exposure which is its own field. People dedicate their lives to just measuring how much air pollution someone is exposed to. Another part of my research, same question, involves dementia. Again, this is an entire realm unto itself. We're now arguing about what Alzheimer's disease is, for example. I mean, this is, this is it, its own realm. And then there is the epidemiologic methods. And so I cannot imagine having a team... Uh, conducting research in this area without deep experts in all three of these areas. And yet I see a lot that's published where someone knows clearly nothing about dementia. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and so it's not just, it isn't just clinicians. It's it's a lot of us who are motivated in this academic environment that rewards publications and grants.
1: And so this goes back to the, the question that I asked earlier from the previous study about mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, the, to me, uh, Darren's point is is totally valid, but I think that the 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 analogy is a little bit off in the sense that it isn't the analogy between what I do as an epidemiologist is study design and the clinician practices medicine, and I would go to jail if I tried mm-hmm. to practice medicine. It's the role of 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 a clinician in in things like understanding the mechanisms behind which the. Exposure affects the outcome, or maybe not a clinician, but a, an immunologist, or a, or a, or a biologist, or whoever it is that's going to help me understand. I I don't always bring those people into my study. I feel like, you know, I do HIV research. I'm not a doctor um, when it comes to HIV, but I've, I've you know, done my reading and I feel like I kind of know what's going on. And, you know, I don't always feel like I need to go to a, a, a an MD every single time. And I could see them saying, well, you clearly don't understand the biology or the immunology or the, right. you know, so I, it, right. I think to an extent, we all do this and mm-hmm. we all, I think the bigger point is we all can get ourselves into big trouble by not including people who have the expertise that we need. Right. Agreed.
0: But can you can you bring up his second the second argument?
1: Well, okay, so I don't maybe if the second argument is the same point that you want to bring up which is he then sort of goes into this idea of bringing in an example of some things that he he sees in the in the in the literature that goes wrong because you know <clears> bringing <throat> a statistician post-hoc power calculations is something that he's talked extensively about and I agree with him and he says you know essentially imagine you know if we're all good bayesians in life then essentially we all have prior beliefs we see new information and then we update those priors to conform to you know, what we should think after we see this new data. If the new data is good, it should convince us to change our minds. So in this case, if you someone writes the convincing paper that says post hoc power calculations really shouldn't be done, then everyone should sort of sit up and say, ah, there's a really good convincing argument. We're all going to stop doing post hoc power calculations. But as he points out, and this is something that I hadn't really thought about, is that that human beings don't necessarily work this way, that you can, as a, as a Bayesian, you can say, new data, I am now going to move in the direction of the new data, and I'll move proportionally to how convincing the evidence is. Or, as a Bayesian, I can dismiss the data, and I can say, this is, this is really bad data. I'm going to stick with my prior because I downweight the evidence. Now, if the evidence is truly bad, that's a rational thing to do. But as a human being, I also have the tendency for self-preservation and for confirmation bias and all the many myriads of biases that we're subject to. I can just find reasons to dismiss that data and the Bayesian process breaks down is that is was that the the point that you were So
0: I mean that is one of them. I mean the one that I was thinking more of is that it becomes harder to there are these customs that develop, right? And like all of a sudden you're doing the same wrong things over and over again because it's customary. Yeah. And we
1: use the standard method. <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. But then and then the more that happens the more it's difficult to undo it or do something you know and I -hmm. I just had a paper reviewed where one of the comments is you know it's not customary to do that well that's not because what's customary is right it's Mm -hmm. just that that's what people it's what first comes to mind
1: we do it this way because we've always done it this (laughs) way
0: exactly
2: it is a really it is it is a uh, memorable moment when someone calls you on some custom that you've been doing (laughs) forever and it's it it takes a lot of effort to get over all of those biases you just described, Matt and, and Jen. Yes. Um, to really process that critique and uh, assuming it's coming from a good place and you're just not shooting arrows at each other. And to consider it carefully and and decide whether or not you should incorporate it. And I will say I've had this experience as well where, and in, even in a context of a re- review, um, someone actually changed the way I work because of a comment in the re- mm, in a review. That's great. Yeah, yeah. No. In my case, they were just wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course. No, that makes it was, total that sense. That was
2: number two, wasn't it? <laughs> that makes total
1: sense. All right. Well, any last thoughts before we move on? All right. Let's go on to our Amazing and Amusing. I'm going to go first this time because mine should be a pretty short one here. And this goes back a ways. It goes back to 2017, but I, I just thought I would bring it up again. Do you guys know Neuroskeptic? Yes. No. Oh, so who it, who oh, or what that's is... That's
2: That's all. I just know yeah that. I don't
1: I don't really <laughs> totally understand I just know that if you Google neuroskeptic you'll find the neuroskeptic blog I don't know who this person is or or what they are but everyone seems to know of the neuroskeptic if you're mm-hmm. in the psych you know psych neuro kind of world yeah. and often neuroskeptic is pointing out papers that make no sense or have mistakes in this case he's doing he I assume it's a he is doing exactly that but I just uh, what's that why he why he yeah Neuroskeptic? Why is it a he? Why What's that?
2: masculine about that?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay, you he, see, she... I am
2: being skeptical here. <laughs> yeah, I think
1: you should be. I think that's fair. I made, a, I made a, an assumption that is it It's probably right. He or she, I'm sure there's an answer. I'm sure everyone else knows who this is, pointed to a study that while it, for all the reasons he's pointed out, is probably a bad study, it still both amused and horrified me that it ever got done. So this study... I actually found the actual study rather than just his uh, version of it. But was entitled, it was published in the European Journal of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging, I'm going to say, because I only have your J, J. Nuke Med Mall Imaging. <laughs> but I'm going to guess, since I don't read that one, by Dr. Chen, I'm just going to say, and colleagues who did this study in China. I think it was China. My memory on this is China, even though that's not what it's about. The title of the study is Neural Correlates of Popular Music Phenomenon, Hmm. Evidence from Functional MRI and Pet Imaging. And what they were interested in finding out was essentially about, like, does listening to music stimulate the... What you know? What are the pleasure centers in the brain? Why is it that we enjoy music so much? So they did these fMRI studies in college students in China, and what they did was they I, they played them two. There was fifteen volunteers. Got two musical pieces played for them. One was Richard Kleiderman's piano piece "A Com Amour." That was the light music control, and the intervention was Gangnam Style. <laughs> and they wanted to know whether. Gangnam Style changed your brain in different ways than did the light control, and they found that the Gangnam Style significantly increased (laughs) fMRI, bold signals in the bilateral, superior temporal cortices, left cerebellum, left putamen, and right thalamus cortex what does that mean yeah my, uh, exactly like so, am
0: i right. I, yeah. I mean do i have permanent the, brain damage the, but I wanna know because i have had to listen to gangnam style in the car what? with my what? five-year-old so many times that we've had to officially ban it well it's like, not in the,
1: it's not in the yeah. study but the answer to the question is yes the answer
2: is... I thought it was that anyway so so okay this reminded me of uh do you both know Dessa?
1: Dessa?
2: Dessa. No, I don't know Dessa. Dessa is a rapper from, I just have to say Minnesota, not that it matters. And she also wrote this really great memoir about the difficulty of breaking up. And so she had been with this person for a long time on and off and just had the worst time breaking up. And she wanted to figure out how to get rid of him. They quit thinking about him, get to get him out of her brain, wash that man right out of her hair. Please say gundam so, Style is the answer. <laughs> so she, she ends up getting connected to some brain imagers, and one in particular. First, to confirm that, in fact, this person is stuck in her head. And they show her a picture of this is someone. very eternal sometimes. Yeah. One sometime. of oh, yeah. the greatest <laughs> movies of, that, right? of all time. So they show her a picture, a photograph of someone, I believe someone she knows, and then a, a photograph of her um, obsession. and And they don't know which one is which. But she does. And they monitor what happens to her brain as she's viewing both. And in they fact, were blinded. She, he, <laughs> <laughs> Probably
0: wasn't important to take that extra this step.
1: This is the no, story that ties
2: everything together. <laughs> yep. Everything. And there's going to be a cesarean section in here so
1: go, go listen to the, last, the episode from two weeks ago and you'll get that joke.
2: So, go ahead. So, in fact... Her brain. She had a Gangnam style reaction to the photo of her.
1: I don't. I, I don't know if it would be a, a Gangnam style reaction, but okay, I get your point. I get your point. So there so is how, definitely so how did you solve the legitimate.
2: Yes. Yeah, so she. Well, that's. You're gonna have to read the book. It's okay. great. It's great. There's a lot of. It is a great book.
1: Okay. So okay, now I'm gonna go back, going back a couple of episodes here now, but. This gives me a great idea because you mentioned Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. If you have not seen it, listener, ah, yes. go out and see it immediately. One of the greatest Love. movies about movie about removing memories. Yes. So we need to make the opposite movie of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minds where instead of having their memories erased, we create their memories by having them eat the memories of a of worm. A worm. <laughs> I think this is this is gonna be the great and we'll call it eternal worm mind of the spotless sunshine.
0: And then we can use that AI thing, that movie creator that we talked yes! about in the yeah. other the right? The
1: deep fakes.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh. We're on to something. By the here. way, you
1: brought that up. That I have now heard more about these deep fakes and mm-hmm. it's gonna ruin everything in the art. future. Yeah. Art the art is gonna get better, but 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 <laughs> politics is gonna get so I much love worse. What do you think
0: that art is gonna what's to wrong, get... wrong with art Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nothing, but it can uh, always get better. Um, the, the, uh, the, I just want to end this with Gungnam Style. With Neuroskeptic actually points out some problems with this study, uh, but one of which is the ethics of just sticking people in fMRI <laughs> machines just to see their brains light up listening to Gungnam Style. So well, I'll leave the it at pe- that.
2: Well, uh, yeah. there's very little radiation with MRI. Uh, there's a little bit more F- with MRI? PET. Yeah. And PET scans? Yeah, okay. it's, it's a, just giant magnet, it? which...
1: Okay. It's
2: just microwaving people.
1: <laughs> okay. I'll let you. Same safe. I'm just good. Same, same. No, no, no. What do you got?
0: Okay. So mine will also be brief. This one is also from the New York Times, which apparently I've been reading more of lately. So it's this concept of phyto Phyto-m- mining. Phyto. Mining. Okay. It's, wait, wait, wait. wait. phyto
1: like oh, the dog? P-H-Y-T-O. Like phytoplankton. Exactly. Phyto mining. So, so we have mines okay. in the ground. We dig them up.
0: Well, you may have also heard of it called smelting plants.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's what what I normally call it. Absolutely.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad you both haven't heard of this. So it turns out that some plants love to soak up metals. Like they can thrive in metal-rich soils, which kills most plants and is also harmful to humans yes. in in high doses yes. and so now there are some people who are interested in creating farms on these areas where it primarily tends to be in the South Pacific where soil is has a very high metallic content. And then when you slice open these plants, the sap that comes out is like electric blue. And it turns out is full of, well, there are different types of plants, but the main ones are the sap is very high in nickel. And we now have more need for nickel so nickel is an important component of stainless steel it's also part of your electric vehicle batteries and the mines that were Plus it's
1: in nickelback
0: were
2: <laughs> gosh you're off the show now
0: <laughs> the mines typically used to smelt is that the, the, the smelt Nickel? Is that, am <laughs> Look
2: I
1: is that, asking? Like, <laughs> I just know that he, he I who, who smelt nickel. I'll leave it at that.
0: Uh, anyway, they, they pollute our waterways, lead to all of these problems. And yeah. so this particular method could be a way not only to increase our nickel supply, but also a way to clean up former mines,
2: which I just thought was yeah. really, Plants. really cool. All by really planting cool. Sucking certain... up the metals. Yeah. So one, cool. one older, worst example of this, and this is very cool, by the way, is um, tobacco actually takes up a lot of cadmium. The tobacco plant takes up a lot of cadmium. So people who smoke cigarettes um, have higher levels of cadmium in their body. And did you know
0: cadmium where crements? most
2: of the cadmium in the, not, body, not the end, oh. body ends
0: up? Mr. Where? Mechanism? Wait, did you know a, that?
1: Ca- ca- cadmium? Cadmium. Yep. The... You weird? have one, I don't. Um,
0: oh. <laughs> so
1: that... This is a family-friendly show. I don't... Uh, the prostate. Dog? For some no, reason... No, you have a dog.
0: Cadmium... I did, I did not know that. Yeah.
1: The, I prostate. the reservoir
0: of cadmium in males is
1: the prostate. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That is... Weird. Yeah. Okay. So, what were the different terms that you had for this thing in the beginning? Okay. So, Fido uh, phyto mining. They also. Phytomining mining and something smelt
0: smelting plants something
1: like- is the difference in the terminology is that like a regional thing like the way that some girl scout cookies you have some are, have different names I in different parts of the country I think mining is soda. the pop and soda is that one yeah. of those
0: I think it's the official term and you know what's interesting is apparently one of the reasons the cool why kids this field hasn't, hasn't moved forward faster is they were like waiting for patents to run out huh. oh my gosh so, of course yeah but anyway, the, the idea that you could smelt plants is something like 500 years old.
1: So cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you could tweet us at pophealthex, or you could tweet me at, at profmadfox, or chris at id.gill, or Jen at, at jennifer R. Rider, or jennifer at can you just give us Epidancer. your password to your
2: yeah not not again oh. <laughs>
1: at EpiDancer. dancer or you can find us on the population health exchange website at www.pophealthex.org we want to thank leslie talalian director of lifelong learning at the bu school of public health for supporting the podcast and nick guler for sound editing and plant smelting i think thanks for joining us we hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode